my family and I were, were here just in this season of, of kind of moving. We had been in Northwest Richmond for seven years and then moving to uh, the s- south of the river and had an opportunity to worship with you a couple months back and met, met some of you. So we've already been blessed just being able to worship with you. And then Jonathan and connecting with, with Drew as well, I think just early on, just realizing just the, the same wavelength in ministry and just a connection uh, in many ways, just in, you know, heart for, for ministry and, and what the local church is. So already just thankful and encouraged by South City and your pastors and just, uh, yeah, already just have, has been a blessing. So this morning, if you want to look at Genesis 2, we'll start in Genesis 2 and actually be in Genesis 3 a little bit as well. So if you can find your copy of the scriptures, it is there in the beginning. Continuing the series that I know you've been in, The Blueprints, Restoring God's Good Design. So how do you answer this question? What do you do? Has that come up in conversations, maybe in a setting where you're meeting someone for the first time? Any different setting, social setting, and that question inevitably probably comes up, uh, maybe by us when we're wanting to get to know someone, but then in return, people asking, what do you do? Implying, what's your occupation? What's your job? That is an important question. And when I was seven years old, when I was seven years old, something happened that changed my life. I knew, uh, grew up hearing about Jesus hearing stories about Jesus, but they were just only in my head at the time. And my dad, again, when I was seven, my dad, he shared with me about how Jesus loved me, loved me so much that he went, gave his life for me uh, in death on the cross so that I could be saved, that I could have peace with God, have a relationship with my eternal heavenly father, have that relationship forever, only through faith in Jesus Christ. So it was at that time when I was seven that I knew I was a sinner in need of saving and I couldn't save myself. So I do remember praying, just asking God to forgive me of my sins, asking him uh, to be Lord of my life. And from that time, as a young Christian, again, not perfectly following Jesus in any way, but as a young Christian, I learned that everyone's most important need is to have a relationship with God. And I began praying that God would use me to share with people about God's love and and how to have a relationship with Him. Um, So my story, my life, again, just marred by uh, seasons of disobedience and misunderstanding, definitely a call on my life. But now I think about, uh, you know, that seven years old, you know, over 30 years ago now in my life, well over 30 years ago, So I've just seen the pattern in my life. Jobs have changed. Like people have moved, my family. We've moved multiple times, but wherever I am, I want to pray for people and love people and share with them how I found the purpose for my life through faith in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. So that brief testimony of my life, could that not be an answer? Could that not be at least part of an answer to that question? To that question, if we're in a coffee shop, meeting someone for the first time, and the question comes to us, what do you do? If we're waiting in the line at uh, the DMV, whatever it is, where we meet people, and whenever that question comes up, what is it that you do? 
I think to have a portion of our testimony given in that answer is not a non-answer. I don't believe it's avoiding the question. But part of our response, honestly, should it not include Jesus? Should it not include the King whom we serve? So wanted to start there and say, as we talk about God, the definition of work, the definition of, of, of labor in God's eyes, we're going to see that, that, yes, what we do as an occupation, what we do uh, in, in labor, we want to define it, but what we do is important, but as, as in all things in life, what matters most in work is God. So as we kind of look at this in the book of Genesis, as we look at this issue or this topic of what we do as this topic of work, let's define our terms. So first of all, work can be defined as, you know, expending mental or physical energy to accomplish a purpose. And so brushing our teeth can be defined as work. But let's go with how Augustine defined work. The expenditure of physical and mental energy to produce sustenance and culture. The activity that engages most of humanity's population in time. So when we do think about the number of people that are involved in work, in that expenditure of energy to create sustenance or to create culture, to allow for the the flourishing and allow for the necessities of a society to go on. Like we, we want to connect with that definition. We want to see that that is very important. Most people, most of our waking times, recent figures show that Americans alone spend approximately 50%, half their waking hours involved in work, devoted to work. So that's on average for everybody in the population. So it is a big deal. It is an important experience. A more recent 2023 Pew Research Center survey found about four in 10 workers say their job or career is extremely or very important to their overall identity. So for, for many people, like work is almost everything. Work is so important to their identity. So again, coming back to Genesis, we're going to see, we're wanting to define on well, what's, what's God's work. How does the scripture define God um, and his work? And then we'll see, we want to define what was before sin, cursed work. We want to see what was our created design for work. What was God's original intent for work. So we'll see that. And then we want to see post-fall. We'll get into Genesis 3 and see because of the curse of sin, what is our work now? The nature of our work and what are, how are we supposed to approach our work as followers of Christ? We want to see that. And then also looking to the future. What is the future of uh, work for the believer? So as I said, the book of Genesis, you know, in the beginning, it's about beginnings. It's about the beginning of the universe, as you've, you've already studied and already heard about. The beginning of time, matter, and space. The beginning of humanity. The beginning of sin, the beginning of redemption, the beginning of Israel, all these things. So we engage in that protology when we deliberate or discuss Genesis. It is the study of first things, and it's the study of the first things as involved in work. So God, again, being the most important aspect of reading or teaching Genesis. God is the most important aspect. So as we look at this concept of work, uh, the topic of work in Genesis, we can't forget God's absolute authority. 
and his presence like in our deliberations. As we look at it, remembering God is the author of work and he has authority to show us what work is for the believer. So look with me in Genesis 2, we'll start there. Genesis 2 verses 1 through 9 and then we'll pick up verse 15 as well. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Verse 4, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. And the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Verse 7, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then look down to verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for your word, its integrity, its clarity, its power. Help us today to see the pattern of work that you've put before us and that we could align our hearts and our lives in occupations, in labor, and how we spend the majority of time for most of us. Put it in line with your will. Help us in that. In Jesus' name, amen. So if there is a title going along with this blueprints, Restoring God's Good Design in Work, that's what we'll see. What is the purpose of work? It's a primary question. So understanding, first of all, God's will for our lives is that we work as He enables us. It is God's will for our lives as He enables us. So how do we faithfully live out His will? So let's look, first of all, at God's work. As you saw in Chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, God's work is mentioned multiple times. So God finished his work of creation, and he rested. Now the word work there, we do want to see what the word means in the original language. In Hebrew, the word work in this passage, meaning handiwork, meaning his craftsmanship, his creation. God personally created everything out of nothing By speaking it into existence. So God was productive and his work produced fruit as we see. It's put like this. All human work is based on this, the analogy of God's work. All human work does resemble God's work in a sense. God's work in creating the natural world. Um, It's described here in Genesis. So God is is depicted again as effortlessly expending energy to create a world of exquisite beauty from nothing. That's God's work. And man's work is going to resemble that faintly, but will resemble that. That's the pattern we see. The psalmist in Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. 
So why did God create? Well, part of why he created was his natural revelation. His natural revelation reveals himself to the world by his work. He is revealed by his handiwork, by his craftsmanship. So God's work is it's helpful to us so that we can know him, know of him, and it should cause us to praise him. So it's not enough just to see the tree and wonder who is the creator of that tree, but to acknowledge there is a creator of that tree, and he is to be praised. So the psalmist again, Psalm 92.4, For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands I sing for joy. What's the response of the believer, of all uh, mankind created by this creator? What's the response to his handiwork? Is that we sing for joy. That we praise Him. So God, in this sense, He legitimizes work. He gives us the pattern. Work reflects God's activity, and He's the author of work, is what we see. If you've seen the movie uh, Top Gun Maverick, Tom Cruise looks like he's flying that plane, if you've seen it. It's impressive how they make him look like he's flying a fighter jet. But we know it's, it's camera tricks. It's, ho- it's acting. It's Hollywood um, filming and, and done to make him look like he's flying the plane, but he's not actually flying the plane. That's us working. That's us working as compared to God's work. So why is his work praiseworthy? Because it's, it's so far above our work. It's so supreme to anything we can ever think of of or imagine. We can never be like Him or do what He does. Let's not get it mistaken or sideways. So creating something out of nothing, speaking the universe into existence, yes, He gives us a pattern of working and and, and taking pleasure in the outcome, assessing the quality of His work as good and very good. There's a pattern there. So we should produce fruit in our labor. Um, We can find pleasure and satisfaction um, in its outcome, but we don't, we don't do the same thing. We don't work as God works. It's a faint, faint imitation at best, our work. So we praise God, not the works of our hands. That can lead to definitely idolatry and, and, and sin entering into how we treat and respond to work, but we praise God. We praise God for His work and Him giving us this pattern of work. Him giving us the duty of stewardship managing his handiwork, his creation. So what is our work? What is our work, the created order, his good design for the work of people? It's not going to be like his work in the sense of creating out of nothing, speaking things into existence. Again, his power is praiseworthy and supreme. But if you look back in chapter 2, verses 4 through 9, we see the work of man that he was given to do. If you look at verse 5, For the Lord had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. So there's going to be a purpose for man's work, to work the ground. And then in verse 15, The Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So verse 5 and 15, that work, that word in the original language Hebrew is different from God's work. It's different, meaning compared to God's work, it is serving It is taking care, tending, cultivating. So we see that distinction here. Man's given the privilege, given the privilege of of managing God's creation. 
So Adam and Eve, they didn't work to create something out of nothing. They get to partner. They get to partner with God in serving His perfect creation. What a blessing and what an honor, what a gift that work is, was and is to created beings. So as we want to understand work as presented here in Genesis, this account, we consider God's work and His, his creating mankind, creating humans in His image. It is a sense in image-bearing, yes, work, our work related to that image-bearing. Image-bearing meaning like cut from something, something cut from an object. So as that relates to work, as image-bearing relates to work, we're not just created in the image of God, in the Imago Dei, we are to act like Him. In Latin, the term imitio Dei, we're imitating imitating God. So we're created to not just display the character of God, but to imitate Him. To imitate Him in function. Imitate Him in activity. So it is a part of our image bearing that we get to imitate God. So by working, we do carry out. We do carry out uh, the fullness of our created purpose in working. Um, We don't bear God's image. uh, Not only bearing God's image, but continuing his example through imitation. It's been put like this. Work has an extremely wide scope, but the theological point is central. Human beings are called to imitate God. Imitate God through work. It's not to be drudgery, but glory. So the assumption is that work will be done in response to the divine will. It's God's will for our lives that we work. So we've seen that God created man to work. God created man to work to be fruitful, to multiply. We, we, uh, you looked at that in the creation account in chapter 1. Fill the earth, be fruitful and multiply, subdue it, exercise dominion over the animal kingdom, working and keeping the garden God had made, imaging God's own character, improving God's creation so that all life, plant, animal, human, so all life might flourish. So are you a banker today? Are you a banker? How does that connect with the original intent and the original design of work serving the creation by managing finances, managing currency for families, individuals, and businesses to flourish? You can apply this aspect to to any type of of job, any type of, of work in the home and outside of the home. Are you in construction? You're utilizing raw materials in a way to shape and form shelter, facility, uh, infrastructure that again leads to flourishing, continuing to allow for flourishing. This is how work connects to the original purpose of God. But we know that work is cursed. We know then this isn't the end of the story for work. It's not the end of the story for Adam and Eve and the man and the woman that are set in the garden to steward it and manage it, serve it, serve God's creation. So let's look at the fall, but then also the future of work. If you would, turn with me to Genesis 3. So Adam and Eve make that fateful choice to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they are going to be banished from the garden The curse of sin enters into the world. And then look at part of this curse to the woman and then to Adam. 
verse 16. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The perfect design for God's people to be fruitful, to multiply, to subdue, and have dominion over creation, it is disrupted. It is ended. So now obedience, partnership, serving in these ways will be toil, will be laborious, will be strife, will be painful. It can be put like this. After Adam's fall, it remained good for man to work, but due to God's curse on the earth, because of human sin, it became necessary for man not merely to work, but to work hard. There's the curse of sin on work. It doesn't end the divine mandate, but definitely changes the nature of fulfilling that mandate, obeying that command. So when he says, cursed is the ground because of you, the ground's going to perfectly, permanently be under the effect of sin. So part of God's judgment for rebellion, part of God's judgment for disobedience is that work, which was a divine mandate, again, which was God's command, it becomes a struggle. It becomes a struggle for existence. So man's going to experience pain as he labors to produce food, which is in contrast to the work of producing food before the fall. Notice the difference. See the contrast that occurs because of sin, because of rebellion against God. So we don't all labor in agriculture, I'm assuming here. Uh, so what does it mean um, to, uh, we don't literally produce the food we eat. So how does this apply to all modes of work? Think of all modes of work. They are required. They are required to meet the necessities of life. I know it was true in, in our family that before uh, our kids went to school, my wife, Lacey, she stayed home managing and caring for our kids to enable me to go out and work in a, in a way that earned money so we could pay for food and, and the necessities of life. And I learned really early on that I got to leave the house to work to, to rest. And she had definitely the harder task, the more difficult job, if you will. But this is the work, the work that earns a wage again in order to purchase food and the necessities of life. And there's this sharing of labor that can happen within a family unit in the home. To be able to manage the home, manage the children, do what is necessary so the father can go out or there can be work happening outside the home to earn that wage. So if we look at... Uh, how do we view work? It is going to be toil. There's going to be strife. There's going to be pain. We're going to have to work hard to do what is needed to allow for flourishing, to allow for the necessities of life. Whatever the nature of the work, whatever our situation is in life, work is going to be hard. So how do we view work as anything but this? How do we view work as anything but hard? Anything but hardship and toil. How do we get out of the mode of like everything about work is complaining 
or I'm dreading Monday, always, only, I hate it. How do we view it knowing that everything's still cursed and tainted by sin? Well, we're going to get into the work of Jesus. What the work of Jesus does for our work. Romans 6.22. Romans 6.22. Let's look at that. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the one who has placed their faith and trust, repented and believed in Jesus Christ, the work that he accomplished on the cross and rose from the tomb three days later, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. So God teaches us here that we're, we're no longer slaves to impurity or increasing wickedness. So by the power of the Holy Spirit and by faith alone in Jesus alone, we're slaves to God. Our lives reflect a path of increasing personal holiness, sanctification. We are born of God and we enter into this path of being set apart for God's perfect purpose in our lives. For, so first, let us just be in awe of, let's connect work to the miracle of salvation. Connecting it to the purchase price that was paid to make us new, to make us followers of Jesus. So first of all, regeneration. Regeneration, we're made spiritually alive. That radical change that occurs for every believer upon faith. Rebirth, radical change. And then our justification. So God pronounces a sinner to be righteous because of the gift of faith in Christ's death that satisfied, satisfied God's justice. Turned away his wrath, God's holy just wrath from us. So both Christ's satisfaction and his perfect righteousness, they're imputed to us. They're given to us by grace through faith. This changes everything. Our regeneration, we are made new through faith in Christ alone, in gr by grace alone. And we are justified. We're, we're declared innocent and declared fully righteous, positionally righteous in God's eyes, removing his wrath from us. But then the process of conforming to Christ, this sanctification, this sanctifying process that every believer enters into, it's not immediate perfection, but it is a trajectory nonetheless. It's a trajectory, nonetheless, because we are free from sin. We're delivered by faith, and that is needed moment by moment, day by day. So, therefore, our work changes, because our lives and everything about us changes, and it's because of Jesus. So we have the capacity. We have the capacity to not sin as we work, to view it as an idol, to find all of our identity in our work, we have the capacity to not do that because of Jesus. We have the capacity to not be lazy and be a bad employee or do a bad job or mismanage things or be unethical because of Jesus. We have the ability, the capacity to not do that. So our work can be God's means of grace to us, our family, and others as we fulfill it in the manner for which he called us to restoring God's good design and work because our lives are being restored through the power of the Spirit. It changes everything. So have you been on the receiving end? Maybe you've been on the receiving end of, of unethical, maybe sinful business practices. Ever been cheated out of money? Lied to, like in a transaction or in the marketplace? 
So it happens, um, happens uh, and, and work for the Christian and the non-Christian. It can again, uh, again be a mode of sin or pathway for rebellion against our Creator. Or work, our production can be a blessing to others can be a blessing to others. So, for example, like a barista in a good coffee shop is, is a blessing to me. They could be a believer or non-believer, but good coffee is a blessing. But I remember my seventh grade football coach, Coach Bill Hughes. He was a believer. I knew it because he was also my youth pastor. But I saw him in a public school setting. I saw him be a teacher and a coach as a believer. And I saw it play out in the fact that, that he cared and sh- gave attention to and taught math and football to the smart and maybe the weaker kid academic, academically, sin- spending you know, that same focus, that same encouragement, that same skill to teach and to coach. Same for the starter, the athletic uh, kid at, compared to the bench warmer. He gave focus and attention, cared for everyone. And then he was open and honest about life, including his faith in Jesus Christ in the workplace. And I tell you, it made all the difference for me in my life and many others uh, of, of on that team. Many others. Colossians 3.23, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. 1 Corinthians 10.31, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. The context of those verses speak to how we treat everything. Different scenarios and different situations in life, they are to be unto the Lord. They are to be to God's glory. And yes, our work is to be for the Lord and for His glory. So we return by faith, by grace, in Christ, by, through Christ, we return to that image-bearing purpose. We return to that image-bearing purpose before the fall. God's redeeming us and our work. He's redeeming us and our work. So Jesus being the perfect image bearer in his incarnation, and he alone is giving us the power to return and restore the original purpose purpose for work. Um, Scholar and, and theologian Al Mohler, he puts it like this, Christians understand labor as a duty, but miss the fact that it is also a gift. In the first place, God made us able to work to manipulate things, to cultivate the ground, to manage herds, to invent microprocessors. But secondly, He has allowed us through labor to understand at least part of our purpose in life, to fulfill a vocation. Furthermore, we can often see the results of our labors. So the farmer takes pride in in the orderly row of crops. The carpenter sees the beauty of his cabinet. The doctor fulfilled in a recovering patient. The mother, mother sleeping content after a day of unceasing work with children. But still many people have difficulty seeing labor, especially their own labor as a gift. So understanding work is a calling. Work is a calling from God and a gift from God. It doesn't mean it's going to be easy. It doesn't mean we'll always be successful. But it's like this. The cosmos, they have a beginning. So thinking about what this is leading to. So the pattern of work that we get to reconnect with in this life and then knowing that it doesn't end in this life. So the cosmos, as you're studying here in Genesis, it has a beginning, but doesn't imply also that it has an end. It has an end. Everything moving towards this this consummation. 
The study of the last things is called eschatology. We're in protology, eschatology, the study of last things. So the scriptures, they present this linear history, this linear history, uh, a movement from inception to completion. So the end of this life, the end of this life and the beginning of the new world. Our work, regeneration, justification, sanctification, it changes our work. But then the last phase, if you will, of the grace of God in our lives, the last phase, if you will, of our salvation will be our glorification. And our glorification relates to our work, our eternal work as well. So our glorification, the glorification of the Christian is that like we're going to share in God's glory when we're in resurrected bodies, in the new heavens and the new earth. We're experiencing deeper fellowship with God, not being asked uh, at risk of falling away to sin. God's glory finally being all in all our glorified state, the glorification. So our present work Our present work is never totally free from the curse of sin. It will be working hard. But God's merciful instructions to us, His his mercy to us, is that we get to flourish in fallen uh, futility. We get to flourish in fallen humanity. And the redemption God accomplishes in Christ, it frees us. It frees us, yes, from idolatrous approaches to work. It motivates us to work unto the Lord. It allows us, as Coach Bill Hughes did, to adorn the gospel in our vocation. And it becomes the arena which we, we love God and, and neighbor. But in, all, in, in spite of all God has done, um, we're not what we, are, we were prior to sin. It will never be, in this life, perfect. It will never be fully restored in this life. So we want to see where will this story arc land. Revelation 21, 1 and 2. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. This is the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 65, 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. And then again, further on in that revelation of the end of all things, Revelation 22, 3 and 4, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And His servants will worship Him. They will see His face and His name will be on their forehead. It can be put like this, God will bring to to pass the purposes he set out to achieve when he spoke the world into existence. He hasn't trashed his his first attempt and, and started over to the contrary. He set out to do what he made this world. He will bring about when he makes it new. God will make the world new and we will do new work. New work in the new heavens and the new earth. The new work we're going to do is going to be the work of ruling and subduing, working and keeping, exercising dominion, rendering judgment, ruling and reigning, all as God's people in God's place, in God's way. We're going to be His people. We're going to serve Him by doing new work in the new earth perfectly, once and for all. So how do we glorify God in our work presently during this 
pre-glorified state, this pre-glorified phase of our life, our lives as followers of Jesus. How do we give an accurate representation? That is glorifying God, giving an accurate representation of our Lord as we labor. How do we do this? What you do every day does count for the kingdom of God. Hear me. What you do, everything does count for the kingdom of God. Our work does matter. So if I could offer just four, if you would, applications for this truth in light of what we see, God's design of work, His work, our original purpose in work, what work is after the fall, and then thinking on and understanding like we will work perfectly in the future new heavens and new earth forever. So what do we do now? Four ways, if you will. One thing, pray. Can that be an easy answer? It can be, but do we? Do we pray every day asking God's help to honor Him as we work? Praying for that. That is a prayer that God would would respond to. He wants to answer that prayer. So praying for favor from coworkers, favor from superiors, favor from family members. So success in our duties, which makes that all more of a platform for Jesus. So pray. The second one, seek to be a burden lifter. Seek to be a burden lifter in work, whether you work on a team, uh, outside of the home, whether you're in the family or a community, wherever your work brings you, seek to play a, your part well. Whatever it is, would it be helpful in your work to type faster? Take a class so you can type faster. Would it help for you to have more physical stamina in work? Well, maybe some some training on the side to build that stamina up. Whatever it takes so this will help produce a way that is going to be not detrimental in the workplace. To be efficient. So God's given you these skills and abilities and a calling. So His grace to you is to have the capacity to improve those skills. And definitely don't be lazy. We see this in Scripture, 1 Timothy 5.8. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Man, we are, as believers, supposed to be leading the way in how we work and what we work for, all for the purpose of resembling our Creator, pointing to Jesus. Pray. Seek to be a burden lifter. Third, John Piper says this about the Christian workplace, and this resonates with me, and it has in different phases of my life, in different types of jobs, but communication. Glorifying God in communication. So if you think of the web of relationships that happen because of a workplace or wherever you're working, these relationships uh, offer possible ways of communicating, Possi- making uh, the Christian worldview, what we believe about Jesus, what we believe about the beginning of all things, making that a part of just normal communication in our life. Bringing it into conversations, yes, in the workplace, like not not hiding our faith, not hiding our light under a basket, but winsomely, naturally, comfortably, tactfully, letting those um, who love their salvation say continually, great is the Lord, in line with the psalmist. So joyfully communicating the hope we have in Christ, in work, through our work. So praying, seeking to be a burden lifter, communication. And then the last one, think about our identity. 
So many people wrap up their whole identity. They find, they're finding all their value from the workplace. But remember whose you are. Remembering whose you are. Uh, work is a calling, yes. It is a gift, yes. But for the believer, it's not our identity. As a Christian who works, let's prioritize him and our relationship with him above and beyond our profession and labor. Let us think of our identity as a Christian first and foremost, even in the workplace, even through work. 2 Peter 3.11 says this, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, the old world, the old earth, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? So that question, what do you do? What is your occupation? What do you do for a living? Jobs change and people move. But wherever I am, I want to pray for people and love people and share with them how I found purpose for my life and hope and peace in the one true God through turning from my sin, trusting in Christ's death and resurrection, and treasuring the new life He's given me for which I get to. I get to partner with Him in making followers of my Lord and Savior. That is the response to the question, what do we do? It's an important question, but the only satisfying response comes after an even more important question. The most satisfying, the only right response can come after, for that question, what, you, what do you do, can only come after you've rightly responded to a more pressing, important question. Have you turned from sin? Have you trusted in Christ alone? For salvation, and are you treasuring him as your Lord and Savior in every aspect of life? Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, would you help us through the power of your Spirit as your people to live out our faith in work for your glory? Lord, would you help? Anyone that's here this morning, or Lord, if there are co-workers, people in the community that we're going to interact with even later today or tomorrow that have never turned from sin, trusted in you, and do not treasure you, Lord, would there be a way to communicate the gospel and love them this week, these upcoming days, to see many people be restored to a relationship with you. I pray all that in Jesus' name. Amen.